0: Rosh Hashanah morning is our time to speak about Israel. I've long felt that at least 25% of sermon time over the High and Holy Days should be devoted to our relationship with the Jewish state. Learned observers tell us that there is nothing more controversial in the Jewish community than Israel. Increasingly, I meet rabbis who confess that they no longer even speak about Israel. Israel has become too controversial, they say. Too many people get mad at me. Avoiding discussion because too many people get angry? It's not our style here. (laughs) The only way to address controversy is to address it head-on. There is no other way to stay relevant. I think that I would disappoint you Actually, I think you would think less of me if I did not address what I thought were the central issues of the day. For those who disagree with my views, I welcome your criticism. Know that whatever position you hold, there are many others here who agree with you. Even I don't agree with everything I say. (laughs) I invite you to tell me where you think me wrong. I do not take intellectual disagreements personally, but just one request. Can I ask you to set me straight after the services rather than during the sermon? (laughs) Write or set up an appointment we will dialogue, and even if we have not persuaded each other, we will embrace as brothers and sisters and friends. One wonders why Israel has become the most controversial issue for American Jews. Why don't we get agitated anymore about what used to divide us? In the past, different interpretations of sacred texts, various understandings about the nature of God, and even what food was kosher for Passover literally split Jewish communities apart. Those controversies now seem tranquil in comparison to the emotional storm that Israel arouses. We feel contempt for those who differ with us. We can barely speak calmly within minutes we are at each other's throats. Why? What grand idea inspires such passion? Before we accuse one another of betrayal of principle, should we not at least figure out what is the great principle that we have betrayed. As for me, I have never uttered a public word as a rabbi or marshaled a communal thought that did not originate with the original calling in the Bible to Abraham, as. <speaking in Hebrew> I will make of you a great nation, and you shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is the Jewish calling. This is the great principle. This is the reason for our existence, to be a people whose purpose is to bless all people. I have grasped you by the hand and created you and appointed you a covenant people, a light of nations, opening eyes deprived of light. I oppose any idea or action that compromises, weakens, or denies that we Jews are a people. We are a family, not simply a family of the spirit, binding like-minded philosophers and believers. We are a real family of flesh and blood with a shared history and a common destiny. There have been plenty of Jews in the past who by word or by deed denied the principle of Jewish peoplehood, the result of which was their disappearance as Jews. There are plenty of Jews today who by word or by deed denied Jewish people to peoplehood. They too will disappear as Jews. Whether their denial is active, they oppose the distinctiveness of the Jewish people on principle as primitive, racist, exclusionary, elitist, not enlightened, or whether their denial is passive. They simply don't care. They have already checked out. At the same time, I oppose any idea or action that compromises, weakens, or denies that the Jewish people's purpose is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. I have selected Abraham to do what is just and right. We have universal imperative. Let justice roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us all? There have been plenty of Jews in the past who, by word or by deed, denied Jewish universal values. They only cared about Jews. The result of which was to render obsolete the very reason for our distinctive existence. There are plenty of Jews today who by word or by deed deny Jewish universalism. They too disfigure Judaism because they rip asunder the very principle that gave rise to our people in the first place. These supercharged Jews threaten our future as surely as those who don't care at all. Because we cannot survive physically or spiritually As a self-absorbed, egotistical people concerned only with itself, not caring about the darkness of the world, and not interested in opening eyes deprived of light, we are too small, and in any case it's not Jewish, to be self-absorbed and unenlightened. And in the 21st century, this ghettoized view of Judaism will never claim the loyalties of the vast preponderance of our people, not here and not in Israel. They would sooner walk away from Judaism than live in the ghetto. The reason that Israel so arouses us is that it is at the crossroads of these two foundational principles of Judaism, Jewish distinctiveness and Jewish universalism. The great principle that we are constantly accused of betraying is either we have neglected the specific needs of the Jewish people or we have neglected the universal demands of the Jewish people. How do we find the balance? This is the question. Finding the balance between particular needs and universal obligations both fundamental to being Jewish, is what causes our angst. What we have discovered in the past century is that it is much easier to sit in the academy and debate moral problems than to stand in the arena and deliver moral policies. It is one thing to think about Jewish values. It is another thing to apply Jewish values. In seeking to find the balance between particular needs and universal demands, let me offer you three imperatives for progressive Jews. First, we must be in the arena. It is not only a question of rabbinic cowardice not speaking about Israel. It is self-destructive blindness because we cannot have Jewish life in America without Israel. Israel is the flesh of our flesh, the bone of our bone. Israel balances the two weight-bearing pillars of Judaism, Jewish peoplehood and Jewish universalism. We can't walk away. We can't expect that on Rosh Hashanah we dedicate ourselves to renewal without renewing our bonds with Israel. We can't repent for the sins of neglect without repenting for neglecting Israel. That is avoidance. Not a vowel. The place for us is in the fray. Israel needs us. And we need Israel. We are interdependent. Get involved. Go to Israel and see for yourself. Join the March Mission. Call the office on Wednesday. Inquire. Ask anything you want. And then sign up. You will not regret it. You will be awestruck by the vigor and vitality, the ingeniousness and ingenuity, the robustness and resolve of the Israeli people, our people. Israel is the most astonishing country. Israeli scientists, researchers, and high-tech geniuses are bringing light to those deprived of light, inventing wiring and securing computer systems, distributing medical devices that improve and extend life. Israel's water technology slakes the thirst of even first world countries. Just a fact of Israeli democracy. 90% of its citizens having come from non-democratic countries is itself a miracle. While Israel has lost past supporters, it has also gained new friends. Businesses and corporations are flocking to Israel to take advantage of the vibrancy, creativity, and problem-solving capacities of the Israeli workforce. The recent wave of international terror has softened some of Israel's harshest critics, who now see in Israel a role model of how democracies can fight extremism. Even previously hostile Arab countries now realize that their true enemy is not and never was Israel, that Israel can be an ally in the struggle against extremism. Second, we liberal Jews should fight for what we believe. We should be a powerful voice for Jewish peoplehood. Precisely because so many progressives nowadays, Jews and non-Jews, are conflicted about pride and patriotism. We have a critical role to play. Come on, if thousands of delegates to the Democratic National Convention can wave flags for four straight days sing patriotic songs and pledge allegiance to the United States if the First Lady can unabashedly remind us that that America right now is the greatest country in the world, then certainly liberal Jews can unabashedly remind us that the Jewish state right now is the most eloquent expression of Jewish peoplehood in two millennia. The restoration of our family to Zion is a miracle of biblical proportions. We did it. We did it together, collectively. Out of the ashes, we reconstituted our dying people and restored ourselves to life and vitality. We were driven by the idea of Jewish distinctiveness, what Americans might call exceptionalism. Zionism is a movement to liberate the Jewish people so persecuted, oppressed, despised, and decimated throughout history, grounded in ancient Jewish values. Modern Zionism is a secular, liberal idea that was conceived and propelled by mostly secular and liberal Jews. Contrary to the accusation of our foes, Zionism is the pinnacle of enlightenment, the very manifestation of the great humanistic ideas of our age, the self-emancipation, and self-determination of a proud and ancient people that contributed so much to the human spirit. That's what liberals believe, self-realization freedom, liberty. We should always be open to criticism. We should not be afraid of it. Pluralistic societies invite and encourage dissent. Israel is far from perfect. She is often well served by domestic and foreign critics, Jewish or not. True fans share their concerns. But we need to stop being so squeamish about anti-Semites, anti-Zionists, Israel bashers and apologists for terrorists, even, especially, when they come from the progressive world. I, too, am a liberal. There is nothing in liberal thought that suggests that of all of the nationalisms of the world, the only illegitimate one is Jewish nationalism. These people have distorted liberalism. Honey sweet their tongue, but hatred is in their hearts. They poison the chalice of liberty, draining the concepts of human rights and social justice of their wholesome meaning. They place our hard-earned Western principles of freedom in service of tyranny. A bomb that kills 10 people is always freedom-fighting. An Israeli response is always disproportionate. Preemptive action is always illegitimate. They speak the language of liberty to enslave. Words of peace for war, humanism, for barbarism, rights, for coercion. Israel is, of course, flawed like every country in the world. We should not hide these blemishes, minimize them, or deny them. But Israel is still a liberal democracy. You're supporting despots. It's not moral courage, it's moral preening. It's a disturbing form of political correctness that cannot be honest about third world atrocities. It sees no evil, hears no evil, speaks no evil, and Israel is caught up in and victimized by this political correctness gone amok. Suddenly we're subjected to a litmus test of liberalism. You can't be a true liberal if you are supportive of Israel in any way. How the mighty have fallen. It's one thing to make a case against Israel at the Berkeley Student Union. Would those very young people on campuses, their learned professors, the folks who tell us how bad Israel is at every rally, retreat, or resolution, would they be willing to live even one month as a gay Christian or as an advocate for free speech and a free press in Hamas-controlled Gaza or Hezbollah-controlled southern Lebanon, or Iranian-controlled Syria, or even in Ramallah. Lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and transgendered who live in the Muslim and Arab world are often oppressed and killed or thrown from the rooftops. LGBT Muslims and Christians escape to Israel to avoid persecution. I hope to introduce you to some of them when we go in march. Would the Presbyterian Church that recently voted to divest from Israel hold its convention in Gaza City and resolve that its delegates stay for a year to minister to Palestinian Christians who are increasingly tormented? The very idea is preposterous. The only state in the Middle East where Christians are free is the Jewish state. To thine own self be true, What business do liberals have supporting those who oppress women, gays, minorities, and Christians? What business do liberals have in turning a blind eye to the suppression of free speech? What are liberals doing supporting anti-democratic, religious fundamentalist extremists? And they're not even embarrassed about it. The luxury of thought detached from the austerity of responsibility, concepts without context, the comfort of denial with no denial of comfort. What business does the British Labour Party have in defending anti-socialist, religious fundamentalist, misogynistic anti-Semites as Hamas and Hezbollah? Why does the leader of the Labour Party consider Hamas his friends? just because they're anti-Israel? And that's enough to outweigh everything else that European socialism affirms? And by what measure of decency do they thus abandon liberal Muslims who challenge the rejectionists and are trying to change their societies to look more like European social democracies? The world is turned upside down and inside out. You pretend that Israel is the worst abuser of human rights in the world and are willing to excuse the inexcusable. This is the fashionable bunk of our times. Mass, myopic, moral malignancy. The rage of the self-righteous. It is a form of fundamentalism. It's one of the well-known tendencies of liberalism that the great liberal thinkers of the ages have pointed out, illiberal liberals. We can be as dogmatic, as doctrinaire, as absolute as the absolutisms we scorn. It's good to be held and to hold ourselves to high standards. But we should not allow, in friend or foe, the license of holding us to unrealistic standards expected of no other nation. Context is not incidental to reality. Context is reality. We should be more tolerant and more understanding, (laughs) less dogmatic, and less certain. The real world is complicated. The study of diplomacy is not diplomacy. A lecture on human rights is not human rights. A class on the proper use of force is not the proper use of force. Implementation is much harder than intellectualization. The responsibilities of power weigh heavier on those who have the power of responsibility. How quickly France adopted many of the security procedures that it so criticized Israel for when Paris was terrorized. Problems become real, not when you read case studies in a textbook or stories in a newspaper. Problems become real when they become yours. For a certain type of person who has never experienced anything but Western freedoms, terror is just a word too opaque to be terrifying. Extremism is a cliché, not extremely concerning. Knifing a grandmother in the back is too remote to cut you up emotionally. This type of person can apologize for and even justify wanton cruelty because they themselves have never been knifed on the way to school, never been targets of missiles never been at the scene of a mass murder, never had to pick up the body parts of a baby. All they know is the beneficent gift of Western liberty that they inherited without having to bleed and fight and sacrifice for the cause. Third, we liberal Jews should fight for what we believe. We should be a powerful voice for Jewish universal humanism. We should stop being so squeamish about the growth of Jewish extremism. It is a threat to Israel's existence. It is not only a matter of staying true to our Jewish spirit. It's also a matter of physical survival. International legitimacy is a security imperative. Every Israeli leader knew this. It's why Ben-Gurion accepted the partition plan of 1947, despite its betrayal of past territorial promises. We need to keep fighting for a just compromise with the Palestinian people, without which Israel's security is at risk. Israel cannot sustain international legitimacy without sincere efforts towards resolving its dispute with the Palestinian people. Israel cannot be both democratic and Jewish while continuing to rule over a growing population of 4.5 million Palestinians. There is a fateful choice to be made, either democracy or a Jewish majority. Both will soon become impossible. And a non-democratic Israel is a contradiction in terms of perversion of Jewish values. It's not a one-way street. It takes two to make peace. Palestinians share much of the blame, more, in my opinion, But still, we need to remind the Jewish world that Judaism is about tolerance, respect, human dignity, and peace. And that hatred and intimidation of Palestinian villagers uprooting olive trees, violence against civilians are abhorrent and un-Jewish and a mortal threat to all we hold dear. We should stay true to our conviction that the purpose of the Jewish state is not only to repair the state of the Jews, it is also to repair the world. The objective of the Jewish state is not only freedom for our people, but freedom for all people. The precondition of the Jewish state is equality, not only for Jewish citizens, but for all citizens and we should stop being so squeamish about the intolerable discrimination and discrediting of non-orthodox Judaism in the Jewish state. It is outrageous and self-defeating that religious power and control is granted to only one small part of the Jewish people, the most narrow-minded and unrepresentative element of the Jewish world, that too is a threat to Israel's security and a blot on our moral fiber. It drives away so many American Jews who cannot stomach ongoing discrimination in the name of Judaism. Israel is the only country in the Western world that does not recognize the status of non-Orthodox movements. What a disgrace. Before I conclude, we should spend a few moments on college-age children I see some of you here and some of you are about to go. And parents who are about to send their kids. I'd like to make two brief points. One, young Jews are facing the same dilemmas and conflicts as we, except more so. I love these kids. I spend a lot of time with them. They are an inspiration to me. In many ways, they are better than us. They're free of discriminatory sentiments. For the life of them, they cannot understand why gender, race, religion, or sexual orientation should make any difference whatsoever. Temperamentally and philosophically, most of our children are liberal. Given that much of the new left has turned away from Israel, they are under enormous stress. It's much harder to be pro-Israel today than when we were in college. Our kids are exposed to all of the new venom manufactured against Israel, and they have not developed antibodies, nor is the Jewish community supplying them with the anti-venom. The BDS movement, single-mindedly devoted to boycotts, divestments, and sanctions against Israel, has skillfully argued that all minority grievances are interconnected that you cannot support the rights of African-Americans, Black Lives Matter, matters, Latinos, or the LGBT community, and be pro-Israel at the same time. By definition, they claim, to support Israel is to support white privilege and colonial exploitation. Many of our youngsters are persuaded. Jews are significantly overrepresented in the BDS movement. The problem is that BDS and some other groups opposed to Israel are not about peaceful coexistence, two states for two peoples. BDS is a radical, dangerous, sophisticated group with anti-Semitic tendencies seeking the destruction of Israel as a Jewish state. In the name of self-determination for Palestinians, it seeks to deprive the Jewish people of self-determination. One consequence of inadequate attention to progressive young Jews who are disturbed by and disagree with Israeli policies is that they are attracted to the most extreme leftist claims. These post-Holocaust, post-six-day war Jews have never experienced persecution. They have never had their Jewish identity questioned or their physical or emotional safety threatened. They do not even consider themselves members of a minority group. They have little appreciation of how pervasively our people has been hated or how precarious was and still is Jewish existence. They believe Israel to be a colonial superpower rather than a small island of eight million citizens the size of New Jersey surrounded by rabid anti-democratic foes who have never accepted even Israel's basic right to exist. Part of the solution is to invest in these young people, even if they express perspectives that are difficult for the Jewish establishment to hear. We want them to be able to speak openly about the imperfections of Israeli society and encourage them to get involved in programs and initiatives designed for them so that they can participate fully and energetically in the great and ongoing Jewish drama of repair and self-repair. Better that they express themselves through us than through those who despise us. These young adults care. They are passionate. They are our own. If you are one of them, and you are here today or listening online, contact me. The door is open. Come in and persuade me and give me an opportunity to persuade you. Two, everything I said up to this point applies mostly to Jews who care. Argumentation, agitation, and activism, these are all good signs that many of us are engaged. But we should be honest with each other on this day of honesty. The central crisis of American Jewry is not that Israel has become the most polarizing of issues. It is that so many young Jews simply don't care. They are our children, the next generation, the future of our people. In many ways, our arguments about Israel are a Jewish thermometer. They measure the temperature of our commitment to Judaism itself. Anyone who has spent any time in the fields of Jewish education knows that identification with Israel tends to be in direct proportion to identification with Judaism. Identification with Israel is the consequence of Jewish identity, not its cause, especially for younger Jews. Jewish Jews identify with Israel if they identify with Judaism. If they do not identify with Judaism, they tend not to have strong feelings for Israel. The main lesson from the campuses is not what it says about this or that Israeli policy, although I do not minimize the effect that these policies have. Rather, what campus activity demonstrates more than anything else, is how miserably we have failed to provide our youngsters with the basic language of Jewish life. Many, I think most, are Jewishly illiterate. They have little appreciation of Jewish peoplehood and little understanding of Jewish values. They have universal sentiments, we've done a good job on that. but. Judaism's universal mandate, ripped from its particularistic moorings, is not Jewish universalism, it's just universalism. Jewish illiteracy, in my view, is the main reason that young Jews are completely overwhelmed and outmatched by people who actually know what they believe, even if their beliefs are noxious. Our kids so intelligent, articulate, curious, and resourceful, are are struck dumb by aggressive, single-minded Israel bashers and Jew haters and have no idea how to respond. They can speak so convincingly about racism, sexism, elitism, classism, and chauvinism. They move us with their idealism, optimism, egalitarianism, pluralism, liberalism, humanism, and altruism. But they are inarticulate about Judaism, let alone Zionism. And now, when they are in college, now, we want to invest Judaism in them. How? And with what? Now when they are in college, we remember that love of Israel is a value we cherish. The investments need to be made earlier. By the time our youngsters get to college, it is late. They are empty Jewish vessels that cannot be quickly or comprehensively filled. We must invest much more in the Jewish future. It is not too late. But it is late. We need to invest in Jewish schools. We need to invest in Jewish camps. And above all, we need to invest in synagogues, where most families who still want to be Jewish congregate. Last year, I spoke with you about our citywide teen initiative intended to attract many, many hundreds of New York City Jewish teenagers. We haven't yet launched. Because despite dozens of interviews, we have not yet identified the leader who we think can do the job. We are still interviewing continuously. I am optimistic that we will find our person. And when we do, we will notify you and ask you to hold us to the promises we made. And when we deliver what we promised, we're going to ask you for your financial support. Teens are the weakest link in the American Jewish community. For most of Jewish history, it's been hard to be a Jew. America is exceptional. Outside the United States, it is harder to be a Jew. For some reason, God has decreed a rocky and thorny road for our people. Looking back through the centuries, it has been a long, hard, tragic march from Sinai, but the journey has also been filled with exhilarating accomplishment, transcendent meaning, and noble purpose. I am grateful to God for making me a Jew and for allowing me to reach this season. I feel blessed to spend a few days in the sun linking the generations in our eternal quest for meaning. I hope that our children will do what their ancestors have done, walk the hard path with faith in the ultimate redemption of our people and all peoples. I hope that they will not lose faith. I hope that they will continue to seek peace and pursue it. I hope that they will find the way hidden from their parents, to make real the vision of the prophet Isaiah. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And I hope that our children will not stop there. In the words of the great Israeli poet Yudamichai, Michai, don't stop after beating swords into plowshares. Don't stop. Go on beating and making musical instruments out of them. Whoever wants to make war again will have to turn them into plowshares first. Amen.